While Donald Trump insults Mexicans at every opportunity, audiences on both sides of the border have been gripped by an enchanting depiction of Mexico and its culture. The highest grossing film in Mexico of all time, Coco tells the story of a young boy's adventures on the Day of the Dead and his quest to uncover his family heritage. Mexican actor Natalia Cordova plays Frida Kahlo, Mexico's most iconic artist, in the English language release. My name is Stephen Woodman. And I'm Duncan Tucker. You're listening to Viva Mexico, a podcast from Guadalajara offering news and views on Mexico in the age of Trump. This is the last episode in this series of the Viva Mexico podcast, so thanks for listening throughout the year. This month we'll be speaking to Natalia Cordova about the impact of Coco. We asked Natalia how significant it was to have a major film celebrate Mexican culture at a time when Trump has been racist towards Mexicans. With a movie like Coco, uh, it reflects a part of Mexico that is so international. It's such an international uh, human instinct to want to know where you come from and to follow your dreams and to be connected to those that have left us and to want to know our back backstory and when we come from, where we come from. You know, it's the whys of life. Questions that I think we all ask ourselves. And um, and it's showing that that way of thinking that we all have, but coming from a culture like Mexico and a culture that's been highly criticized by a very ignorant side of humanity, by a very uneducated, very uh, lacking of humanity side of things, which is Donald Trump is the face, but there's a lot of people behind it. And I, I think it's their last stand, you know. I, I think these believe they're dying. In a picture like Coco, with a production like Pixar behind it, willing to expose this culture, and not just have it be this culture, but a very human aspect of, of us as beings. They need to belong. They need to find belonging in, 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 in yourself and in others and in your family. It's all a very human instinct. And, uh, and to expose that makes people that might have had um, negative uh, education or um, exposure to what Mexico is and the Mexican culture is, it, it exposes them to going, oh, to go, oh, okay, well, they're just like me. We also asked Natalia what it meant to her to portray Mexico's most beloved artist, Frida Kahlo. You know, I, I have a very deep voice. I have a very strong personality. I always was very outspoken with what I saw, just my doubts. I would constantly ask my father the whys of life and other people. And my father always made sure that I felt belonging in those questions. But I, I got a lot of re rejection for being the way I am growing up. I got a lot of, you know, women don't talk like that, women don't think like that, women don't do that, women don't do this, you know. So um, when my father gifted me uh, Frida Carlos' journal, it became sort of a Bible for me because I'm also not religious whatsoever. And I would just read it to find belonging because all of a sudden I had a woman in front of me that was praised for being an outcast and was praised for being a rebel and was praised for being so different and so weird and and, and unique and 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 she was very naked with the way she was and uh, and it made me feel companionship and it, and again it gave me belonging and so and it strengthened my voice and it made me not shy away from who I was and to not try to belong by being someone I wasn't 
and that's very special to me, and uh, it strengthened who I was. And so years later, to, you know, come back and as an actress be able to voice the woman that empowered mine is, you know, beyond special. It's, it's magical. It's, it's, it's very mystical, and the universe coming back and letting me know that what I might have thought was a witness, weakness, or people made me feel like that was my weakness actually became my biggest strength. So Steve, Frida Kahlo is one of the more iconic roles in the film. Why do you think she's still such a popular figure today? Well, the Frida Kahlo brand has really exploded over the past decade and uh, she's become a huge feminist symbol. Her artwork is really kind of intimate and it dealt with her personal pain and suffering in life and I think that's really appealing to people but the the image of Frida Kahlo is seen everywhere we even saw the conservative British Prime Minister Theresa May who completely refuses to stand up to Donald Trump in any way she's in she's willing to invite him to the country for example to to the UK she even she was wearing a Frida Kahlo bracelet at the Conservative Party conference, which she was roundly mocked for because Frida Kahlo was actually buried in a hammer and sickle and was a avowed communist. So definitely uh, she's received a lot of attention in recent years. Do you think Theresa May, Theresa May was just desperately hoping a bit of uh, Frida Kahlo's personality might rub off on her if she was, were a symbol? Yeah, a bit of, uh, <laughs> a bit of Frida power, yeah. <laughs> Natalia has been outspoken about the sexual harassment that she's suffered in Mexico's machista society. But while many women have spoken out in the United States in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, very few Mexican women have felt able to come forward and share their stories. We asked Natalia if she thinks this, this problem is as bad or even worse in Mexico. Um, the reason why I think uh, women haven't come out in Mexico yet, and I do believe the problem is either worse, I, I believe it's worse than in the United States, you know. Mexico is in high alert of femicides. Women are getting killed left and right in Mexico. We disappeared almost a whole town of women, Ciudad Juarez. My my state, where I'm from, Quintana Roo, is in the high alert for femicide. I grew up in, in, in a jungle where you would have never believed that at one point it would be, you would fear for your life as a woman. So clearly, we, we, we have a deep problem in Mexico. The industry is highly infected. I know for a fact it is. I've heard from actresses that have been raped. I've heard from actresses that have been sexually harassed. I've been sexually harassed. I was 16 years old when a 30-year-old actor, a very famous soap opera actor, stuck his uh, tongue down my ear. And I was just a kid. I was 15 or 16. And he was someone I thought, oh, he's a big actor, you know. Um, So all those things have happened, and I'm sure much worse things than that have happened. I know from the, the, the you know from the women I, i've heard have there been many cases of women in mexico speaking out about sexual assault not really i think the only major figure in mexico that's spoken out about this is the the actress kate del castillo who said that in televisa mexico's biggest uh, tv network the directors were basically pimping out some of the actresses at the time that she was working there and i think there's been calls for her to apologise for saying that. So that kind of shows how what kind of reaction women do get here when they speak out. There doesn't seem to be much of support for women to speak out in the same way that there is in, in the United States or in other countries. 
And does the structure of Mexican media have any impact on on this? I think so, because you've only really got two major broadcasters, Televisa and, and TV Azteca. So if you get on the wrong side of them and you're critical of them publicly, then you're not going to find many other opportunities to, to advance your career. So I think Mexican actresses probably do feel like they can't speak out and keep their job or their career at the same time. So election season in Mexico is starting to heat up and we're beginning to see potential candidates for the presidency come forward. Uh, can you speak a bit about who they are? Yeah, so the main contender, or the, the front runner at the moment is Andres Manuel López Obrador, a veteran leftist candidate who's run twice before and lost uh, contentiously the first time and the second time was a, a bit less close. But he's um, got a big lead in the polls at the moment, but there's, there's still a long way to go. So it's, it's hard to, to see how it's going to go for him at the moment. And then we've got Jose Antonio Meade, who's looking like he's going to be the, the candidate for the ruling PRI. Um, he's not actually a member of the PRI. He's a, he used to be in the, the cabinet of Felipe Calderón of the PAN, and now he's served in the, the cabinet of Enrique Peña Nieto. And I think they've gone for him because he's quite different to Peña Nieto. He's not tainted by association with Peña Nieto like some of the other cabinet members are. He's a bit more distant because he's not a pre-member. And um, he's quite a different personality as well. He's more of a technocrat. He's not like a, a slick, pretty boy kind of face like Peña Nieto was, was supposed to be. He's more of a kind of dull guy. But I think they've, they've gone with him because they want people to be scared of AMLO and what he represents and the danger to the economy. So they're going for a kind of experienced guy who's run several different um, government agencies and had several different cabinet positions. So we've got the same dynamic, basically, that we've seen across the world of a pair of safe hands against the candidate of change. Yeah, so maybe this time it'll be third time lucky for AMLO. As he, he's kind of got that, that appeal to people who are sick of the establishment. But if you were going to choose a country that would buck that trend, I would say Mexico often bucks the trends of political trends around the region yeah. and possibly around the world. Right? Yeah, it never really followed the the kind of pink tide of socialism that a lot of other Latin American countries did in the early 2000s. And it's quite a conservative country, Mexico, so it wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if the PRI did manage to, to retain power again. And another big development is the Senate is debating this national security law. Yeah, this is a, potentially a pretty big deal. The law would kind of militarise Mexican society, formalise the role of the, the army and the marines in, in the war on uh, drugs. And that would basically mean what's already been happening in the last few years, where the, the army and the marines have been sent to do police work, that would become kind of standard across Mexico and in many parts the dangerous or conflict regions of the country. And a lot of people has been over 150,000 people have signed a petition against this. More than 200 human rights groups have come out against it. The United Nations has come out against it. Because basically, when you send soldiers to do police work that they're not trained to do, then what you get is a lot of human rights abuses. You get um, people disappearing, you get extrajudicial killings. And we've seen this time and time again with the army. They've been involved in many suspected massacres in the last few years. And it just looks like the drug war could continue to, to get even worse if this if this law's, law gets passed. And they say police work, but I think that might be a bit misleading because they're not, they're not running investigations and replacing detectives. They're basically, you know, 
kicking down doors and yeah. dragging people out of beds and they have a terrible both the army and the navy have terrible human rights records and including abuses against women children i mean all sorts of things yeah there's also some concern over the, the, it will help the government to um to be able to deploy the army when there's demonstrations against the government um there's also a suggestion that the army will be able to use intelligence gathering methods like uh, basically spying on activists or journalists which um they wouldn't legally be able to do at the moment it may be easy for them to do that in the future if this law gets passed and andres manuel lopez obrador made headlines a lot of them negative because he has proposed or he said he wouldn't rule out an amnesty for uh, drug traffickers yeah it's been pretty controversial a lot of people don't feel much sympathy for drug traffickers because they're responsible for tens of thousands of deaths every year in Mexico. So it's not the most popular proposal. I think there is some merit in looking for alternatives because obviously the current strategy has failed and this year is likely to be the most violent year in Mexico's modern history, according to the m- most recent um, murder statistics. So I think it is good that Mexicans or Mexican politicians are, are looking for alternatives but I think any kind of pact or amnesty with the drug gangs would be almost impossible to put into practice because it's not just, just like you've got two or three big cartels like maybe was the case 15 years ago. It's now completely fragmented, so you've got dozens of different gangs across the country and it would be very difficult to get all of them to agree to any kind of uh, pact at the same time. Also something that Alejandro Hope, one of Mexico's leading uh, security analysts, mentioned in a column this week was it's not the kind of proposal that it's very wise to be talking about on the campaign trail. If you're going to do something like that, it's better to do it quietly while you're in government rather than openly discussing it on the campaign trail. I mean, yes, it's more transparent, but it's it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily going to win you votes in a country that's being devastated by uh, drug-related violence. And he announced in Guerrero, which is the state, the southern state of Mexico, that is probably, well, definitely one of the worst-hit states when it comes to the drug war. Uh, mind you, uh, when we spoke to former president Vicente Fox, he has some quite progressive views when it comes to drug policy. And he said that it would be a good idea to try to sit down with the cartels and negotiate as well. So they actually have something in common on that. Yeah, it's probably the first time I've ever heard them both pick a similar position on any issue. So we're building bridges. <laughs> so, Steve, as this is our last episode of the series, what have been some of your highlights of this podcast? Well, I really enjoyed speaking to the British writer DBC Pierre um, because he was just a huge fan of Mexico. And he mentioned, I remember, that Mexico is the energy of six countries put together. And I think that's an important point about the country. We've spoken about some of the problems and the negatives, but also there's an incredible cultural energy. Um, We saw that with Coco that there it's a film that focuses on all the kind of cultural things that are going on in the country and it's really just such an inspiring and unique country yeah and it's important not to forget that because obviously as journalists a lot of the time we have to focus on the the more upsetting aspects of the crime and the corruption and the violence and all of that because obviously if you don't draw attention to these issues then they're never going to go away or they're never going to get solved but at the same time it's, it's an amazing culturally vibrant country like you were saying so it's, it's always good to to look back and reflect on that as well yeah, you never really run out of ideas in Mexico. So which of uh, the interviews really stands out for you? Well, I think uh, the most obvious one was 
when we went to interview the former president, Vicente Fox, I mean, just going there in person and, and meeting him, it's not, not every day you meet a former president and not one that was as historically significant as Fox as well, who did end 71 years of uh, one-party rule in Mexico. And it's sometimes forgotten because he's kind of considered almost like a joke in Mexican society now. But in, historically at the time, he was a massive big deal that he ended the, the pre's domination of Mexican politics. And it was just a, a surreal experience meeting this larger-than-life character, really. So we're going to have a think about next year and see whether we'll be back with some podcast specials or whether we're going to uh, maybe do some videos next year. But I think we've we've run out of wall theme titles for, for now. So <laughs> that'll be the end of, of this series. If there are any wealthy patrons, we can also reconsider our... Uh... <laughs> yeah, if anyone feels like financing the comeback of the Viva Mexico podcast next year, then we're open to offers. And um, we've gone from having really awful sound quality to mediocre just sound quality, awful, or, you know, which is a good, it's a definite progress. But I'm happy with the guests we've had. I think we've had quite a lot of variation from comedians, activists, politicians. Um, I think we've had quite a, an interesting range of voices on the show. And I think I've learned a lot just talking to to people that I wouldn't have normally had the. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and people with pretty different perspectives. When you have people like the indigenous candidate Mary Choi, or you have um, someone like Vicente Fox, or a comedian like Sofia Nino Rivera, people with completely different backgrounds. You've been listening to Viva Mexico, a podcast bringing you news and views on Mexico and the age of Trump. If you've enjoyed our podcast this year, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes at Viva Mex Podcast. Viva Mexico.